You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We do have our notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those. Planning to finish up chapter 14 today, but I do want us to begin by reading the entire chapter just to set the, the context once again for what we'll be looking at today. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his head, hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. <clears throat> and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers are the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith. In Jesus, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the, rind, from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Last week we talked about <clears throat> what, what factors into our ability to persevere through these types of times, to persevere through um, the, the temptations that are going to come to yield ourselves to the beast, and to the, to the false prophet, and to the mark of the beast, to to basically value our lives over worshiping Jesus if it meant that it would cost us our lives? How do we, how do we make it to that type of uh, stage in life where we're able to say yes to Jesus even if it means dying uh, for him? We said last week it's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit 
the assurance of the presence of Jesus, a deep knowledge of God's word, and the support of other believers that are those necessary components for us to remain obedient even in the face of death. And we stepped away from Revelation a little bit and looked at uh, the book of Joshua and saw specifically how God comforted Joshua as he prepared to do one of the most difficult things he would ever do in his life, and that was to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, into the face of, of uh, many people who would seek to kill him and the children of Israel. And God comforts him and encourages him to find hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, in God's presence that was going to go with him, um, and then ultimately uh, to find hope in the promises that God had already made to him and had already kept. Um, and then we also saw specifically how Joshua's confidence in living out his faith was going to be directly tied to his obedience to God and his word. Um, we saw that uh, last week our confidence in God's presence in our life should be directly tied to our effort to obey his word as well. And we saw specifically how uh, guys like Moses and, and Joshua and Samson all experienced this in their life, how when, when God was not with them, when they were not being obedient, God was not with them and was not going with them. He didn't have that supportive presence towards them, right? Moses has this experience on Mount Sinai, comes off the mountain, he's prepared to go back to Egypt and lead those people out, and he's failed to circumcise his own son. And God comes and sets out to kill him if he doesn't rectify that situation, right? Joshua leads the children of Israel against Jericho, and they win that battle, but uh, Achan violates God's commands and takes some of the precious stuff from Jericho, and that leads to a great defeat against Ai, right? And Joshua kind of cries out to God and says, where were you? Where were you? You were supposed to go with us. And God says, I'm only going to go with you if you're going to be obedient to me, and you've got sin in the camp. And then we saw, uh, as well, Samson, an individual who had God's blessing on his life, had been called to a specific type of life. Uh, he gives in and, and, and compromises, and ultimately that leads to his defeat as well, right? He goes out to fight the Philistines and ultimately experiences defeat. And the Bible tragically says he did not even realize that the presence of God had departed from him. He believed that God still had that supportive presence upon his life. He had been disobedient, and he experienced the tragedy of the defeat of that. By the way, I mentioned to you the movie that was coming out, and it's really, really good. Um, if you've got time to go see it, it's showing in Noonan. Um, Tuesday nights are a great night to go. It's $5 there. It's not a great theater, but it is a great movie. So I um, encourage you to do it. It's, it's, really, um, it's really biblically based in the presentation of Samson. In fact, I think it, it even challenged my thinking in some of the ways that I typically perceive Samson. Um, there is some artistic uh, liberties that are taken just to kind of fill in some of the gaps, but I don't think anything that was added to the movie takes away from what Scripture uh, presents about Samson. So there's some biblical movies that come out, they really stray from the biblical account to try to add to the story. While there's additions to the story, nothing really detracts from what, from what God's Word has to say. Um, so I'd encourage you to see it because it's, it's a really good presentation of that story from Scripture. Um, so we saw those three examples of how when we're not being obedient to God, His supportive presence doesn't go with us. And so from an application standpoint, we talked about um, areas that we need to solidify in our life so that we can better face death if our obedience leads us to that. And then I also encourage you to complete the, the form on the city to update your accountability card so that um, you're expressing to us who is it that you envision really helping uh, you hold fast to your faith here at Sovereign Hope. And so if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do so. We've already had a lot of responses to that form. But this is just a way for you to update. Here's the two people that I would want to come get me and help me fight sin if I start to yield to sin in my life. 
Um, again, because as I look back through some of the forums recently, some of the people that you had written down have moved on and are in different places from this church. And so wanting to update that. So I encourage you to fill that out if you haven't done so already. So let's jump now into uh, Revelation 14 once again um, and wrap up this chapter together today. Our summary sentence, um, the harvest of the earth. We must prepare for a great harvest that is to come by spreading God's word now in anticipation of his coming to separate and to judge. We must prepare for a great harvest that is to come by spreading God's word now in anticipation of his coming to separate and to judge. We're going to see today in both this passage and in other passages that reference this end-time harvest that, that God comes, that God sends Jesus to separate people and then to judge unbelievers. And so we want to prepare for that by spreading God's word faithfully now, anticipating that coming to separate and to judge. For our kids, we need to share Jesus with others until he returns. Until he returns. As you're writing that down from the introduction standpoint, just wanted to kind of remind you, and that's why I wanted to read all of chapter 14 once again, to remind you of, of the context of this passage. You'll remember that first section of chapter 14 where it talks about the 144,000, um, it really helps us to understand the state of believers in light of all of the stuff that we saw in Revelation 13 with this coming deception that the Antichrist and the false prophet bring to this earth. That the state of believers is secure, particularly those that die for not taking the mark of the beast. Those that are killed and those that are persecuted, they are viewed in the beginning part of Revelation 14 as kind of a first fruits, which... Right at the beginning of this chapter, we start to get some of that harvest-type uh, theme, that harvest-type mentality. They are the first fruits. And so all believers that die before Jesus comes back are kind of viewed into that category, these first fruits, those that will be reunited with those that are alive when Jesus, is, uh, when Jesus returns, those that are alive here on this earth. And so Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians where, man, those that have died before Jesus comes back, they will be reunited when Jesus comes on that glorious day to, to draw all people to himself, right? So that first section of Revelation 14 talks heavily about the security of believers in light of all the coming deception. And then that second part of chapter 14 expresses a, a sufficient warning to all the earth to prepare for this coming harvest at the end of chapter 14, right? We saw the message of the three angels, and, and they're coming to warn uh, sufficiently all people of what is to come. Uh, there's the, the call to respond to this, this global gospel that goes forth, right? Uh, and we see some things that are expected of people if they are going to be adequately prepared for Jesus when he comes to harvest on that day, right? When we see there in the first part of chapter 14, the people of God, they are described as those who have kept themselves sexually pure. They are those who are described as following the Lamb wherever he goes. They are also those who are described as people who are who are of, uh, or of truth, right? There's, there's no lies found in them. They are truthful, honest people. Man, I'm continuing to try to strive to, to make sure that that's true of my life, right? Like, we want to be people that are known as truthful people, that aren't deceiving type people. Um, I had another opportunity to do that this week where um, I had uh, filed a report. So Adam and I, McLeod and I, had a chance to go to the national championship game to see Georgia and Alabama play, and, and we parked our cars at the MARTA station, and on top of Georgia losing that game, I come back that night to find out that my truck had been broken into. 
Uh, the glass was shattered everywhere. Um, so it kind of set like this, this thing in motion where that week where I had to just do a lot of work to get that cleaned up and had to call my insurance company and um, had to submit. I had to pay for the window to get put back in my deductible, and then I had to file for reimbursement for the tent on the window. So I had tinted my windows a couple of years ago. Now I had one that was tinted and one that was not, and so I had to go and do that, but they weren't going to pay for it up front, so I had to submit for reimbursement. So I'm waiting a couple of weeks to get the reimbursement check, and they end up sending two checks. Right? I, get, I get two $45 checks to cover the expenses, and, and I know it only costs $45. And so I kind of get that, and I'm like, yeah, but I had to pay $100 for that window too, and so this money would help kind of offset that cost, and, and that's their mistake on them for sending two checks. Uh, whoever did that was just not thinking straight, and so I can easily cash both of these checks. And I was like, I'm going to feel awful if I do that, because we just talked about the, the necessity to be truthful as a follower of the Lamb, and so I was like, I'm not okay with doing that. So I called them, and I was like, look, you sent two checks. I don't think that was accurate. It wasn't right. Surprisingly, the lady was like, no, I think we were supposed to. I don't know why, but you're definitely supposed to cash both of those. We don't, we don't make mistakes, and we don't send checks that we're not supposed to send. <laughs> and so I said, okay, you know, you know this, is, this is great. Like, I've made money off of this, this experience, right? So um, I texted Adam, and I said, I think I'm going to start parking my car there all the time. I'm going to make it like a part-time job where, you know, get broken into, make a little money off the repairs. Um, but again, like that was, a, that was a situation for me this week where I was led back to what we're studying in Revelation. And I really wrestled through that because I was like, nobody's going to know the difference um, if I do this. Uh, but, but really, by the Holy Spirit, was kind of led to, and you got to make that right, right? Like, you can't just move forward and know that something wasn't right and do it uh, as, a, as a follower of the Lamb, right? Like, it's described here, the people of God are people who, who there's no lie found in them. There's no deceit found in them. There's, there's truthfulness about following the Lamb. You go into that second section, though, and there's more descriptive words for what it looks like to respond to the gospel to make sure that you're a part of the right group when that harvest time takes place, right? We see in chapter 14, verse 7, that we're to fear God, we're to give Him glory, we're to worship Him, right? So, so not only are we sexually pure, not only are we truthful, not only do we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, we fear God, we worship Him. It goes on to talk about how we don't worship the beast. We don't identify with the beast by taking his mark. We keep his commandments. We keep our faith in Jesus. Which leads us into that final part of chapter 14. After all that sufficient warning, respond to the gospel, fear him, worship him, don't worship the beast, don't take his mark, judgment comes. Sufficient warning has taken place, and now judgment comes as this final part of chapter 14. The kingdom of God is seen as a harvest that is to come. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, like I said, we're going to see several places in Scripture where, where God's kingdom and the coming kingdom and, and Jesus' judgment is viewed in this harvest-type terminology. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. All right, comparing the kingdom of God to a coming harvest. And, and we certainly will see passages that relate how we spread the gospel like seed and 
the gospel begins to grow and it begins to flourish, but we'll also see that, that the devil comes in and, and kind of sows his own seed as well, and there's a need for separation to take place at the end when Jesus comes. Uh, but his kingdom is certainly compared to a coming harvest. I think what's really interesting and, and unique and important to see in this passage in Revelation chapter 14 is that the timing of the harvest comes from God at the appropriate time. We see here that this, uh, this instruction about when to put your sickle in the ground and when to reap and, and when to harvest the earth comes directly from God's temple, directly from his throne. Now, it comes through the avenues of angels and, and maybe Jesus here that we're going to talk about and see as well. But ultimately, all that message, all of that action flows from the temple of God. It comes from God's authority, and it comes from his throne. In addition to that, it comes when the harvest is ripe. It comes at the appropriate time. Right? If you've ever been to like pick your own fruit, like sometimes it can be hard to determine if the fruit is ripe or not. We take our kids every year to um, the peach orchard over in Williamson, and, and I have to monitor my kids closely because they are notorious for picking things that aren't ripe yet or picking the ones that are overly ripe and are, and are no good anymore, right? So they'll just start throwing stuff in the bucket, and you have to pay for whatever's in the bucket. And I'm like, look, this thing's not even like remotely peachy colored yet. Like It's not close to being ripe yet. But Abram will reach up there and grab the first one that he sees and start throwing them in the bucket. They'll pull the kind off that are just squishy in your hand, that, that have obviously over-ripened themselves. What's, what's cool to me in reading this passage is that this happens when the harvest is ripe, when it's the right time. Right? It's all part of God's perfect plan. Jesus comes at the appropriate time. And I think we get some indicators in Scripture of when that timing is right. Genesis 15, 16, you'll remember... God, God allows in his grace and his mercy for sin to kind of fill itself up. He gives the maximum amount of time for repentance before he brings judgment. Remember in Genesis 15 when God is communicating to Abram, I'm going to give you the promised land, but your people are going to have to go into slavery for 400 years because the Amorites' sin has not been fully complete yet. Right? They're going to be used as a tool by God to judge the promised land. They're going to judge Canaan for the Canaanite sin. But God says, it would be premature, it would be early if I gave the promised land to you right now. Because their sin is not complete yet. Right? Like they are giving, they're, I'm going to give them more opportunity to repent. I'm going to give them more opportunity to, uh, to turn back to me. Ultimately, he's also giving them more time to sin which makes them uh, more appropriate to receive God's judgment. That's found in Genesis chapter 15, 16. We also see the same type of concept in Daniel chapter 8. God's talking about some of the end time kingdoms. He says in verse 23, At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So there's, there's, a, there's a timing factor in some of these end-time things where when the transgressors have reached their limit, that's when it will take place. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers, have become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. 
that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. Paul's talking about these people filling up the measure of their sins. Why? Because the wrath has come upon them at last. Right? Like God allows the measure of man's sins to be filled up to a certain point, and then he enacts judgment. He will do the same thing at the end of time. Okay? Let's jump in. We're going to do two quick points this morning um, to kind of wrap up chapter 14. Starting off with number one, participate in the preparation for the harvest now. Participate in the preparation for the harvest now. For our kids, we need to decide to follow Jesus today. All right, we get this warning in Revelation 14 that a great harvest time is coming. We're going to talk and discuss how there's some debate as to whether or not the first part of this passage is about uh, a reaping of salvation and the second part's about judgment. What's not debated is the second part is certainly about God's judgment on unbelievers with, with the grapes and the treading of grapes and God's wine press of his wrath. We need to participate in the preparation for that day of harvest now. All right? That begins with, number one, us having a responsibility to prepare ourselves for the great harvest to come. We need to prepare ourselves for the great harvest to come. Let's look at some of these passages that reference <coughs> the end-time judgment in relationship to the harvest terminology. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. This is known as the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. If you skip down to verse 36, Jesus explains this parable. He says, then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Over in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in, in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. 
And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think we can understand both of these passages in, in a similar context where, where Jesus is describing the growth of his kingdom, right? And his kingdom grows through the spreading of his word, through the spreading of the gospel. We know from the sower and the seed parable where some of that, some of that stuff falls on, on the types of ground that, that it really doesn't take root, right? That, that sometimes we see initial responses to the gospel, and then we see uh, kind of a withering away or a falling away from the faith, uh, as a descriptive way of understanding that, man, that, that never really took root in them, right? We understand it to be that, that the gospel really never took root. It's not that somebody had the gospel, responded to the gospel, believed the gospel, and then lost their salvation. It's simply one who initially responds to the goodness. Hebrews talks about this. They've tasted of it a little bit, but it doesn't really take root, and they kind of fall away from the faith. Jesus says, man, there's coming a day where, 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 where that's going to be that's going to be decided and determined, and it's going to be known who really has the, the true seed and who does not. Right? He says, man, I understand that the enemy has kind of come in and sown uh, the, the 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 weeds amongst the wheat. We understand that, and I put in my notes to make sure that you understand. This is a, an understanding of the the universal church, the capital C church, and the local church. We've talked about this. I mean, the local churches are full of believers and unbelievers, right? It's full of people who call themselves members of that church who do not have the gospel. That they've tasted the gospel, that they want it a little bit, but they haven't been fully invested into it. They're not necessarily those that we would describe as fears of God, those that worship him and him alone, those that, that are striving for purity and obedience in their life. The gospel really hasn't taken that type of root in their life. Jesus says, I fully get it. I fully understand that the kingdom of God, from the earthly standpoint, has wheat and weeds in it. That it's full of people who are believers and unbelievers. And he tells his workers, he says, there's coming a day when I come back that I'm going to separate the two. Right? Like, it's going to be known clearly, this is the wheat, this is the weeds. Right? These are the sheep, these are the goats. God uses that type of language, not just in Revelation, but also in the Gospels to help us understand we have a responsibility to prepare for this great harvest to come personally. Right? Like we need to make sure that the Gospel has really fallen on our hearts and it was tilled up soil that was ready to have the Gospel take root in our life. That we've responded to it and it is growing and flourishing and producing fruit in us. We have a responsibility to prepare for this harvest to come. Number two, we have a responsibility to bear fruit now in anticipation of the great harvest to come. We have a responsibility to bear fruit now in anticipation of the great harvest to come. Man, even in our own lives, there should be some first fruits that are being produced that show that we are going to be grouped into this category when Jesus comes back if we live until that day. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is John the Baptist talking. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. All right, that idea, that idea, of, uh, that idea of truthfulness. Verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, And what, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. John the Baptist communicates the responsibility for there to be fruit that shows that our repentance is true, that our repentance is genuine. In John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And Jesus is tying in the idea of, of obeying his commands as being a way that we abide in him. Right? We've talked about that in Revelation already, that if we're truly, <coughs> truly followers of the Lamb, then we obey his commandments. And, and again, the reminder to us here is that these commandments aren't burdensome, right? Jesus says, I'm telling you these things, I'm speaking these things to you, why? So that your joy can be made full. Right? God says, I want you to be joyful people. I want you to experience the joy of life, and the joy of life comes through being obedient to my commandments. We have a responsibility to bear fruit now in anticipation of this great harvest to come. Number three, we have a responsibility to help prepare others for the great harvest to come as well. It's not just about preparing ourselves, but we also have a responsibility to prepare others. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right? Jesus calls us to have the same type of compassion that he had upon the world, to view ourselves as laborers in this harvest, and to prepare other people for this harvest that is to come. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. The laborers are few. And he encourages and incites his disciples to get involved in that work of preparing people for this harvest to come. Number four. We have a responsibility to work with others to help prepare others for the great harvest to come. We have a responsibility to work with others to help prepare others for the great harvest to come. Notice the difference there. We have a responsibility to help others get ready for this harvest to come, right? We have a responsibility to share the gospel, to, to share it with others, to draw people to Jesus. But we also have a responsibility to work alongside of others in accomplishing that task. It's not just about us doing it so that we receive glory when people come to Jesus. It's about working with others to ensure that people are prepared, whether we get the credit or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Man, Paul reminds us not to be divisive or jealous as we seek to share the gospel with others, that somebody else may kind of swoop in and lead somebody to Jesus that we've been working on for years, and all of a sudden it's like, what, what just happened there? Now, I shared with you the story of the guy at, at uh, McDonald's who came to me and said, man, I'm rejoicing because I've been working on this guy for years, and he hasn't listened to me, and then he comes to me and says he's a believer, he's a Christ follower now because of a conversation that he had with somebody else who basically shared with him the exact same passage that he had been sharing with him for years. It just, it just, he heard it differently, right? The Holy Spirit moved and worked in ways that he hadn't previously been doing in this guy's life. But the important thing, and what the guy was expressing to me at McDonald's was, man, I'm just rejoicing that this guy's a Christian now, right? He said that God didn't even give me any credit, really, for all the work that I had done for all these years leading up to this. He said, but, but I'm, I'm seeing it as a guy who, man, I, I helped plant, I helped water, but man, it was somebody else who saw the increase of this. And it's a reminder to us that we labor, not so that we get glory for leading people to Jesus, right? We rejoice that people come to Jesus, whether it's through our efforts or whether it's through the efforts of somebody else. Again, all this language kind of ties into what we're seeing in Revelation, this idea of a harvest that is to come when Jesus comes back. Number five, we have a responsibility to rejoice over those who are harvested even now, right? Jesus describes the idea that and it's not just that we wait for the future for this to happen, that it's already happening in a first fruits type standpoint. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, and this is uh, right before he has the conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Uh, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is getting this idea from Amos chapter 9. It's a fulfillment of a of a bountiful-type prophecy that was given to Israel in Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Jesus is describing what is basically... The, the task of two different people kind of overlapping. That basically the guy who's sowing the seed can't sow it fast enough before the guy is coming in to reap the growth of that seed. 
that basically there's such an, a, a, an immediate response to the gospel that's happening that these two guys are kind of overlapping. Like, I'm over here reaping, and then this guy's coming right behind me and sowing once again. We're not having to wait for the harvest time and then having to wait for the planting season again. So he's basically taking their understanding of, you understand how the harvest season works, right? You plant, then you have to wait months to see the growth. He's saying, man, we're having that happen immediately right now, right? And then, like I said, it's on the heels of the conversation that happens with the Samaritan woman where she gets things right with God, and she goes and brings people to him to hear that message as well, right? So it's not so much that we have to wait until the end time for the harvest. Jesus says there's a harvest that's taking place even now. At least to the last one, number six, we have a responsibility to press on when we don't see an immediate harvest, right? Jesus tells us that we may, and we're to rejoice over that when we see it happening. But a passage that we looked at extensively already, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, where, where Jesus or Paul takes the principle of science, the, the sowing and the reaping principle, and says, man, you may not see the immediate effects right now, but don't grow weary. Don't give up. You will reap if you continue to sow. Right? So participate in the preparation for the harvest now. Be prepared yourselves. Right? Jesus says there are believers and unbelievers in the church. Right? John the Baptist even goes so far to say, don't, don't, don't say that you're a Christian just because Abraham's your father. He was, claiming to, he was calling the Jewish people out for looking to their heritage and saying, hey, we're okay because we come from Abraham. Man, it's a message to our kids and our youth this morning. Don't, don't think that you're okay because your parents are Christians. Right? Like if you've never experienced the gospel change in your life, you're on the wrong side of the harvest right now. Right? You've got to get things right with, with God personally, not because of who your parents are, but because of who you are. As a sinner in the image of God, you have a responsibility to repent and turn to Jesus. Prepare for the harvest that's to come now. Get ready for it now. Once it's taken care of for you personally, man, we have a responsibility to share it with others, right? <clears throat> Help prepare others for this great harvest to come. Work alongside others that are doing it as well. Rejoice when we see people come to Jesus now. Don't lose uh, heart. Don't grow weary if we don't see immediate harvest right away. Keep sowing, knowing that that harvest will come. That leads us to our second point. Number two, expect the execution of the harvest later. We participate in the preparation of the harvest now. We expect the execution of the harvest later. That brings us back to Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. There's some background passages that I want to read to you real quickly before we jump into this portion of the text. Again, because I want you to see that the language of Revelation is used throughout Scripture. Joel chapter 3, verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. This is Joel chapter 3, verse 11. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Okay, so, so God is forecasting this, this coming judgment, right? Verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Isaiah chapter 63 is another passage where we see the, the judgment viewed in, in relationship to a harvest or to a, a treading of the, the grapes in the wine press. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I mean, that even goes back to earlier in Revelation 14 where it talks about the people having to drink the, the, the wrath of God, to drink that wine of God's wrath, right? So Isaiah is even forecasting this uh, coming judgment in regard, in regard to the wine press of God's wrath, the, the trampling of the grapes. <clears throat> One other passage that we'll look at is, is not a previous passage, but one that casts us even further into the future in Revelation chapter 19. Maybe just a retelling of what we're already reading in Revelation 14. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread past the, or he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see two harvests that take place here. Number one, the reaping of the earth which I believe is what we've already read about in some of the more clear passages in the Gospels, a separation of the believers from the unbelievers. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not um, this reaping and this harvesting in verses 14 through 16 is a good thing or a bad thing. Is this a reaping of salvation or a reaping of judgment? Uh, but I think you can kind of see both because, like I said, we've read these passages where it talks about Jesus coming to separate the wheat from the weeds, right? He takes that winnowing fork and, and basically separates the two, right? There's a, there's a stripping away of the weeds, and it talks about how the ones that are left shine, are, are shine in the sun of righteousness, right? So I think what we see here is a reaping of the earth implying that Jesus comes to separate the believers from the unbelievers. And I did say Jesus, and there's debate here about whether or not this is Jesus or not. It says that one comes on a white cloud, seated on the cl cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Uh, there's support for seeing this as Jesus from Daniel chapter 7, where we get this image. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We understand that to be Jesus, he's compared to one like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And then in Revelation chapter 1, John began his writing by talking about uh, this image of Jesus in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Let's get down to verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, his voice was like a roar of many waters. In all those passages, we're talking about Jesus, right? Um, in Mark chapter 13, the last passage we'll read about this, Mark chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Um, I see this as Jesus because of the, the passages that I've just read to you and how Jesus is referred to in those passages. The reason people debate as to whether or not this is Jesus it's ultimately for two reasons, and it was great to hear in y'all's discussion groups that you found the two reasons, and um, just to kind of remind you why we do the discussion groups, it's to, it's to ultimately train you to, to better understand Scripture on your own without having to be taught everything. And you may not always see it, you may not always realize it, but I can certainly see it and realize it in the groups that sit closer up here as I'm filling out and finishing our PowerPoint notes each week. I can hear the maturity taking place in you guys as you discuss these difficult passages. I can hear you answering questions that I know previously you would not have been able to answer in the ways that you answer them today. So I want you to understand, man, it's not just a time filler when we do that, right? Like it's meant for you to interact with the passage before I ever bring it to you so that you can better grow and develop in your ability to read and understand Scripture. And you guys understand why there's debate about this because of two things. One, it talks about there being another angel in comparison to this one who's like a son of man. So it naturally should raise some questions. Is this Jesus being referred to as an angel here? And then I also heard some of the responses. No, there's other angels in this chapter, right? And it's a, there's another angel and another angel mentioned throughout chapter 14. So it doesn't have to be comparing this new angel with the one previously described as Jesus. It can be talking about another angel because there's been plenty of angels mentioned in chapter 14. But the big reason for those commentators that don't want to see this as Jesus, it's tied to the fact that an angel comes and gives the one that we're calling Jesus instructions, right? That probably should raise some red flags and some concerns as well. Why is, it, why is Jesus taking his cues from an angel? Um, some of the explanation for that, uh, again, great to, great to hear this from the discussion groups without you even being prompted to this, uh, that, that Jesus expresses on earth, he says, I don't know when this time is supposed to happen. Right? Like this, is, this is withheld from me, it's withheld from angels, it's for my heavenly Father. Now, does Jesus now become aware of that, now that he's in his glorified body? Probably, probably. But what's really important to note here is that this angel is not giving commands as though the authority comes from him, right? If this is Jesus, the angel is coming directly from God's temple, directly from the throne of God, with a message to Jesus, right? So God is, God is not calling Jesus to submit to an angel, right? The authority, the timing of this harvest comes from God the Father. 
And if he gives that instruction to Jesus through an angel, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. The language here describing this one who comes on the cloud. And I think everywhere we see someone coming on a cloud, it's Jesus. Right? So it would be a deviation from the norm here to call this not Jesus. Um, again, there's a little, little bit of trouble there with the angel giving the instructions. But I think there's overwhelming evidence on the other side that this is to be viewed as Jesus. He comes with a sickle in his hand to reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It's fully ripe. When Jesus comes, he will separate his harvest. Matthew chapter 3. So whether believers or unbelievers are primarily in view here, I don't think it's as important. Because John the Baptist describes this in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A couple of different harvesting type tools being used here, right? The sickle, kind of that, that bended type sword that comes in to, to whack and to, to cut down the harvest. The winnowing fork being similar to like a pitchfork where, where there's a sifting that takes place from the good and the bad, right? And John the Baptist says when Jesus comes, he is going to do this. He is going to take that winnowing fork and he is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to separate the good piece of the harvest from the bad. This ties in again, like I've already said, with verse 4 of chapter 14, where the people of God that are with him on that mountain being the first fruits. They are now reunited with the last fruits here, the final fruits of this judgment. So when Jesus comes to reap the earth, he will separate believers from unbelievers. Number two, the vintage of the earth. Those related to the wine of the earth, the vine of the earth. This is the judgment of the unbelievers. Now I think what's unique to see here, in the first passage we're saying that Jesus comes, and that plan to execute comes through an angel, but it comes from the temple of God, right? <coughs> but in the second description of the harvest, it says another angel came out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Who's this angel and what altar is he coming from? And I, I totally believe that he's coming from uh, the altar that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 6 that we've already seen. Why is that important? Because in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And what we see here in Revelation 14 is once again a response to the cries of the martyrs in heaven, crying out to God for their, their blood to be avenged. We skip ahead to Revelation chapter 8, and we see once again it's a response of the prayers of the saints for this to happen. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Right, so, so the prayers of the saints are being answered here by an angel who has power over fire, 
we read about in Revelation 14. It's the same angel in Revelation 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Man, this response is a response to the prayers of the saints for God's kingdom to come. This angel comes from the temple. The angel comes from the altar and says, Now's the time. Put in your sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. This ties in, like I said earlier, with the passage in verse 10 of chapter 14. He who worships the beast and takes his image will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. The wrath of God is now put on full display here. It's a direct response to the prayers for vindication. This is a, a, a picture that would have been readily familiar to the people that originally read this, right? The way that they made wine at that time was to take the grapes, to stomp upon it, to squeeze that juice out with the feet. That juice would kind of run down and it would be gathered and collected. Um, if you want to see a humorous video, you can look up the grape lady. Um, because that's immediately what came to mind. There's a YouTube sensation where this lady's trying to, to show this, and she ends up falling, and gets spread all over the place. But, but it does show initially, before she falls, what this looked like, right? They would take the grapes, and they would stomp it out, and they would press the juice and squeeze it out, and, and they would make the wine from it. And so the picture here is God's wrath, where he is stomping out, and he is trodden upon those who have rejected the gospel. Now, it could be easy to view this and say, that's completely unfair for God to judge people that way. God's supposed to be a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace. That's why it's so important to see this passage in the context of the three angels right before this, right? The angels who go across the globe, warning, man, respond to the gospel, fear God, worship him. If you take the mark of the beast, if you worship the beast, here's what your future looks like, right? You will drink the, the wine of God's wrath. Sufficient warning has been given. And now the wrath of God is put on full display and the time of mercy has expired. The time of spreading the gospel has ceased. And the judgment will be extensive. This, this number here, 1,600 stadia, is a type of measurement that's basically equivalent to about 200 miles. Um, there's a couple of reasons why this number would be significant. One, that's about the length of the promised land. Um, which is kind of unique to think that, that God's basically taking it and punishing it to the, to the extent of what Israel viewed as their area, right? It's supposed to rise up to the point of uh, the height of a horse's bridle, which could be about four to five feet off the ground. Um, it's also the square of 40. 40 is the number used throughout Scripture as a number of judgment, right? We think of uh, Noah and the ark and them being on the, on the ark and the rain coming down for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Um, so there's, there's some significance to the number, um, but it's a symbolic type number to really show the extensiveness and the thoroughness of God's judgment. We're also told that this judgment will take place outside the city. This is most likely outside of God's holy city. We see this referenced again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and the sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We see these armies marching against God. 
They are outside his holy city, and that's where his judgment <coughs> comes. And so we see that same reference here in Revelation chapter 14. So what are we seeing here in this passage? One, we're being reminded that God's always used harvest-type terminology to reference his coming judgment. Right? He says that we have a responsibility to be prepared for this. Uh, we have a responsibility to prepare others for this. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. We have a responsibility to get into the game and help with this harvest. Right? We work alongside others for this great harvest to come. We rejoice as we see uh, signs of that harvest, even now as we see people coming to Jesus. We don't grow weary when we, when we feel like the harvest isn't happening. We continue to sow, knowing that we will reap one day. Jesus is coming back to separate believers and unbelievers. When he separates the two, he will bring judgment, lasting judgment, forever judgment on unbelievers. Which leaves us with, okay, what's the application for it? Number one, who is one person that you desire to see come to Christ before the harvest time is here? Man, I was, as I was reading and studying and thinking, I, I began to just start to think through, who would I be, who would I be devastated about? because of my lack of conversation or my lack of interaction with these people in my life and the harvest came today. And what if I'm part of the final fruits of the harvest and I live until Jesus comes back and Jesus comes on that cloud today and he begins to reap the earth, separating believers and unbelievers. And who, who's at least one person that I would be like, man, why didn't I have more conversation, more interaction with that person before that harvest time came? Number two, once you, once you recognize the one person that you're thinking of, what needs to change in order for this to happen? What needs to change in your life right now for this person to come to Christ before the harvest time is here? What needs to change in, in how you're interacting with them in order to see them come to Jesus? And this leads into the discussion we had this morning about excuses that we have for why we don't share the gospel with others. And, and anytime this topic comes up, I'm always drawn back to Exodus chapter 3. This is, this is Moses on Mount Sinai. God's telling him, you're going to go back, you're going to lead my people away from Pharaoh into the promised land. Right? And he gives them all this encouragement, this is what's going to happen. And then Moses begins to rattle off excuse after excuse after excuse, Right? Exodus 3.13, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Right? Moses' first excuse is, They're going to ask questions, and I don't know the answers to those questions. This is going to be a colossal failure, because I'm going to go do this like you called me to do it, and they're going to ask questions, and I'm not going to know the answers to them. Right? God responds to that excuse. He responds to that concern and begins to give him the information that he needs. What's the, what's the encouragement for us? Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving why so the Holy Spirit can come. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to draw to your remembrance the things that you have learned. I've found this time and time again when I've been in conversations, whether it's gospel conversations, counseling situations, where, where the Holy Spirit just starts to draw to my remembrance things that I've read, things that I've studied, things that I've heard, that if you had asked me a couple of minutes ago to rattle off some of that information, I wouldn't have known it. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Why? Because I didn't need it. Man, the Holy Spirit always works and always moves because Jesus said that's how he functions, to draw to our remembrance the things that we need to know, right? Moses goes on to make excuses. Um, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to respond to me. God says, you're right. Some of them are going to listen to you, and I can tell you right now the Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Moses answered, um, 
Uh, I'm not good at talking. Verse 10 of chapter 4. My Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Right? He says, I don't have the right answers. I'm not, I'm not good at this. I'm not, I'm not a good speaker. I, I get tongue-tied. I get confused. I'm not going to present this very well. And God responds over and over to Moses and says, just go do it. Please quit making excuses. And then I'm also reminded of what we looked at last week. What did God tell Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Like, the worst that we're talking about is you sitting down and having conversations with people about the gospel. Right? Joshua's about to go into the promised land where people want to kill him and all of his men. God says, be strong and courageous. I go with you. I've made promises to you to encourage you in the midst of this. I wanted to close by reading this. It's uh, Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on this passage as he wrapped up the sermon that he did on Revelation chapter 14. He said, I beseech you, do not risk that doom for yourselves. Escape for your lives. Look not behind you, but fly to the only refuge which God has provided. Whoever will entrust his soul to Jesus Christ shall be eternally saved. Look unto him who wore the thorn crown, and repose your soul's entire confidence in him. And then, in that last great day, you shall see him seated on the white cloud, wearing the golden crown, and you shall be gathered. But if you reject him, do not think it wrong that you should be cast with the grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God and be trodden with the rest of the clusters of the vine of the earth. We talked about that, right? Like, it's, it's just, it's right. God's given sufficient warning. I beg you to take Christ as your Savior this very hour, lest this night you should die and save. Lay hold of Jesus, lest you never hear another gospel invitation or warning. If I have seemed to speak terribly, God knows that I have done it out of love to your souls, and believe me that I do not speak as strongly as the truth might well permit me to do. For there is something far more terrible about the doom of the lost than language can ever express or thought conceive. God save all of you from ever suffering that thing. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. And that's my prayer for you, for those in this room, because I recognize there could be believers and unbelievers in this room as well. Right? We have a responsibility to respond to the gospel and to make things right on our end so that we're a part of the right part of the harvest. I mean, it's also true for those that we're closest to, right? People that we work with, people that we live with, our families, our friends, those that we enjoy hobbies with, and they need this message, right? Our family worship questions in closing. Number one, who are some people that our family would like to specifically pray for their salvation? Number two, what are some ways we can engage these people as a family over the next month? Tying in with some of the things that may need to change in your life to make sure that you're putting yourself in position to share this message. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you that you've given us sufficient warning to prepare ourselves for what's coming in the future. God, I'm thankful that you've given us just clear guidance from your word that there is a harvest to come, that there is a harvest that we can prepare for today. God, we're thankful that you have called us to be laborers with you in that harvest and that we get the, 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 the great joy of sharing Jesus with others and drawing people to salvation. God, help us to, to enjoy doing that with other people. Help us not to desire to take credit for that. We'd be free from the jealousy that may come from seeing others be successful in their gospel efforts and us not. Help us to be reminded that we don't need to grow weary in our well-doing and in our efforts to sow to your kingdom, that as long as we continue to sow, we will reap. God, we're thankful that you're coming to make all things right. And while we look around and realize our church is a full of people 
who don't fear you and don't worship you and, and don't value truth and purity, that you're coming one day to set that right. And that you're going to separate the weeds from the wheat. God, I pray in the meantime we'd be faithful to share the gospel with those that are within our churches even that we know aren't right with you. God, we thank you that you've extended salvation, that you continue to delay your coming. We recognize there are people that are not yet saved that will be saved. We rejoice over that. God, we recognize there's still sin that will need to happen before you uh, allow your grace to expire. So we recognize there's still more martyrs to come. There's still more death to be had before you send Jesus on that cloud to come get us. So God, I pray that we would endure faithfully, that we would keep pressing on and seeking to be obedient to you. Help us to realize that our obedience, your call to us to be obedient is for our joy. Help us to realize that day by day. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.